I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing, Playing with, with Science. Science. It's that time of the year when the legends of the fall rise and stake a claim to Major League Baseball's coveted World Series pennant. We don't know yet who will battle it out this time around, but we do know if there's homers galore, the juicing rumors will return. Absolutely. And we have the perfect guest for just that topic. The man who wrote last year's baseball juicing paper physics, Professor Alan Nathan. So we'll get to the bottom of whether or not that is the case. Plus, we'll be talking to James Sherwood from the UMass Lowell Baseball Research Center. Uh, they're the guys that run the tests on both bats and balls, which will certainly be interesting. Yes, it will indeed. And because we've got the science and tech bases covered, we needed a seriously big hitter. So we have a man who, amongst other records, owns the most home runs in a single game. And it's four, by the way. And that man is Sean Green. Yeah, Oh, looking forward to talking to him. Yeah. Really am. This is a great mix in this show, man. Yep. We got record breakers. We got the people who keep records and the people who make records. And juiced balls. Don't forget that. No, I love juiced balls. I know you would. <laughs> right, let's get our first guest. <laughs> professor Alan Nathan, a professor of physics emeritus at the University of Illinois and chairperson of this particular baseball study. Um, professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, how did this come about? I mean, why was why would the why would Major League Baseball commission ten scientists to do this study in the first place? Well, so uh, I, I, I can only speculate. Uh, uh, I, I think that there had, as you know, as everyone realizes, there had been an increase in home runs and. Last year, 2017, by the time the committee was formed, they were MLB was on a trajectory to have the largest number of home runs uh, of any season in MLB history, and uh, Major League Baseball was was uh, uh, was sort of getting a lot of bad publicity from it. There were a lot of people writing that somehow the ball had been altered and. Uh, uh, juice uh, in the lingo uh, and I think ultimately they must have decided look we really do need to look into this we need to understand this uh, so they initially called on me uh, to uh, chair the committee and ask for some suggestions of people to be on the committee uh, and we, we took it from there it's just weird because you would think that Major League Baseball would be very very Pleased because people want to see home runs. I mean, you know, that's that's what you go to the park for. I think they're pleased at the home runs. Uh, uh, you know, I think I think fans are pleased at the home runs. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, but I think they're they're quite sensitive. Again, this I'm just speculating here. I think they're okay. sensitive to bad publicity. One thing about baseball is there there is a real sense of the historical aspects of it true meaning that you know a home run hit today you know means the same thing as a home run hit 50 years ago and uh you know records that were set back then uh uh being broken 
uh, in the current environment. Uh, they, they, you know, I, if they're broken legitimately, that's fine. But if they're broken because of change, either in the players, you know, the the other juicing scandal uh, of right, a right. or go, uh, or changes to the ball, uh, I think they're sensitive to that, and I think fans are sensitive to that. Okay. So I think they really felt that that they really wanted to have uh, a, a group of scientists with no axe to grind whatsoever. Uh, working independently uh, of Major League Baseball, see if they could come up with uh, the reasons. So we're talking about the purity of the sport, the purity of the game, to respect the history. So in which way do you do that? I mean, there's coefficients of restitute. You've got natural products which come with natural flaws, i.e. wood and leather. How did you go about ensuring the purity of the game was respected, but science has its say? So we proceeded along two broad tracks. Uh, one was using actual data uh, from MLB games, so the so-called StatCast data, where uh, a combination of radar and cameras are used to track every pitch ball and every batted ball. So we analyzed those data. We had complete access to the data. Uh, so that was one part of it, to see whether we could spot anything in the data. And the second uh, uh, branch of this whole thing was to do our own laboratory testing of various properties of the baseball. Uh, and uh, intermingled uh, with both of those was actually a trip to Costa Rica to visit the, the, uh, the Rawlings uh, factory where the baseballs are actually the baseballs that are used in Major League Baseball are actually constructed. That was very very informative uh, for us to do. But they, yeah, so as I said, two different tracks: analyzing data from actual MLB games and taking our own laboratory data to try to uh, figure out uh, what, if anything, had changed about the baseball. And and your findings were were conclusive, inconclusive, or uh, partially conclusive, or what? What exactly were your findings? Okay, so uh, we had some amount of success, and you know, one big hole in our study, which I'll which I'll tell you about. So we we sort of asked uh, two overall questions: uh, Is the increase in home runs due to a change in the launch conditions of a ball coming off the bat? That could come either from a higher exit velocity, which would lead to longer fly balls, or uh, more and or more optimum launch angles. Uh, that would, uh, for a given exit velocity, uh, at a more optimum launch angle, the ball will travel farther. So we we looked extensively at Statcast data to see whether we could see any evidence at all for either one of those things. Uh, and in effect, we found no evidence that you could explain the change in home runs by a change in the launch conditions, either the exit velocity or the launch angle. So that was the second question that we asked was, was it the change in the carry of the ball? That is, once the ball leaves the bat for given launch conditions, given exit velocity, launch angle, and whatever other things you want to put into it, is the ball carrying farther now than it did two, three years ago? Uh, and we found evidence in the data that that indeed was the case. And moreover, that the change in 
that carry was really sufficient to uh, account for the change in home run. So it was not a change in the launch conditions themselves. It was a change in the carry of the ball. And uh, and uh, and we found this directly from the Statcast data, and we confirmed it with laboratory measurements. We had large samples of baseballs from various years. We we're able to measure the so-called coefficient of restitution of the ball, uh, which measures how how bouncy the ball is. Uh, the bouncier it is. So when when one talks about the ball being juiced, normally one talks about the ball being more bouncy, a higher coefficient of restitution. We found no evidence in the laboratory testing that there was a higher coefficient of restitution, more or less confirming what we found from the analysis of the StatCast data, namely that the, the exit velocity wasn't really changing all that much. Uh, we, but further, we found that there was a change in the so-called drag coefficient of the baseball. Mm. So the carry of the ball if, if baseball were played in a vacuum, you know, uh, the large conditions would exactly uh, determine the landing point. Uh, but we, it, baseball takes place in the air, and there is the effects of drag and lift. The drag is really the most important effect. And the, what we found was that the drag properties of the baseball had changed in an ever so subtle way. Uh, and by an amount that basically could explain the change in the home runs. Okay, so it wasn't the coefficient of restitution. It wasn't the so-called launch angle revolution that people talk about. You know, batters swinging, altering their swings to come up with a more optimum launch angle, which then lead to more home runs. It really had to do with this subtle effect in the so-called drag coefficient. So that was the success, and it all hung together very, very nicely. What was the failure? What, uh, what was missing? What was missing was we could not, and still have not, been able to figure out what actual physical property of the ball that you could measure would lead to a change in that drag coefficient. We looked at all the obvious things. We looked at the surface texture of the ball, which affects the how you know affects the drag because it affects how the air flows over the ball. We looked at the seam height. Uh, we found no change that in the seam height that could explain uh, that change in the drag coefficient. And then we even started really grasping at straws and looking at really really subtle effects. And uh, and 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 these subtle effects that we look for, we also found nothing that uh, would explain things. I, I should point. And, and by the way, it was those follow-up studies trying to figure out what had, you know what property of the ball had actually changed that re reduced the drag that led to the long delay between when our report was initially submitted at the end of December to when it was finally released uh, in May, that we were just conducting further laboratory studies to try to figure this out. We didn't succeed in figuring it out. So is this, is this still a mystery? Or are we still looking at the fact that we don't know why, well, you know, we're getting more dingers happening? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, this is pretty fascinating, if it is. 
Uh, yeah, that, that, that is where we are. I mean, so wow. a lot of effort. So a, a, as a scientist, I have to say that it was a little bit un, unsatisfying for us in that we we sort of figured out things to a point, but then we reached a stumbling block and we weren't we could not find what you might call the smoking gun that explained everything. Professor, before before you go on, uh, um, I'm, I'm sat here thinking and I'm a, I have a devious mind on occasions, what happened if I cook the ball or lower the temperature of the ball? So I play with that, quite literally, if I stuck it in a microwave for 20 seconds, raise the core heat and everything else, or actually froze it for a while. I'm sure you consider that, the sort of ambient temperatures that come into play. Okay, so the thing that you're talking about would would af- would not affect so much the carry of the ball. The air temperature, okay, through which the ball is going, mm-hmm. does affect the carry of the ball. So in in warmer temperatures, the air density is lower, the ball carries further. We looked at that actually, and we 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 actually and, and we concluded that it was not a change. Uh, you, you couldn't explain the home runs with a change in the temperature. The thing that you're talking about, putting the ball in a microwave oven or you know, in a freezer or, or, or whatever else, that would actually affect the coefficient of restitution of the ball, which would then affect the exit velocities. And since we found that the exit velocities didn't explain things, uh, you know, that, that would not have been an effect that would have been, would have been seen. Well, I think it's fascinating that this is still a mystery. I'm interested to know whether or not Major League Baseball wants you to continue uh, and and make some findings, or are they just happy with the fact that what you were able to establish is that the ball is not juiced? And they're like, all right, ball's not juiced, we're good, and that's it. Yeah, so there's there are two of us on the committee, myself, and Lloyd Smith, who's a mechanical engineering professor at Washington State University, it's his laboratory where all the lab work was done. He and I are still involved. The rest of the committee is not. Uh, so I'm involved. So uh, Lloyd uh, at his laboratory is pursuing various ideas uh, about what would be the cause? So, you know, one of the crazy ideas that we had was that maybe the, you know, the ball is uh, the center of the ball is the so-called pill. Mm-hmm. And that uh, and one of the crazy ideas we had was maybe the pill uh, is slightly off center. Uh, and um, when it which it could easily be. And when it rotates, it wobbles a little bit, not in a way that you could actually perceive, but the air going over the ball would perceive it. It would change the drag. And if absolutely, if, if the ball were now better centered than it was because somehow they've improved the manufacturing process, then uh, that would reduce the drag. So one of the things that's happening is Rawlings, the company that makes the baseballs, is actually preparing us for us some baseballs in which the pill is purposely put off center, just so we could study the effect to see if that would play any role whatsoever. It's only speculation on our part that it might. And so those are the kinds of crazy ideas that we're pursuing. And so it is ongoing. I'm, I'm, I'm serving as, well, Lloyd Smith and I have worked together 
over a decade and a half of doing a variety of sort of physics of baseball type projects. So he and I talk with each other all the time anyway. So he and I together are still involved uh, with this project. The rest of the committee uh, is not, at least not yet, uh, still Wow, that I, I got to tell you, it's fascinating stuff. It uh, does uh, open and, your and, mind, Chuck, doesn't it, to yeah. the sort of consideration that's taken place uh, with the professor and his team on this study. And uh, we, I mean, I remember back to the World Series last year, pitchers were saying, of course the ball's juiced. And I think that what the professor's done is just said, that's a great idea, but the facts are, it's not. We don't yeah. quite know yet, but that won't stop us trying again to find out exactly what it is. And I think on behalf of every baseball fan, that's a, that's a perfect scenario unless you come up with the perfect answer first time, but it hasn't been the case. So uh, I think everyone's pleased. I think uh, go back to that point of purity. The sport seems to have retained its purity unless of course the athletes themselves have uh, done something. To Which, that. Hey, look, Look at that. That's a whole nother show. Isn't it just? <laughs> right, right. I have to say, it was, for me, it was uh, an exhilarating uh, project to work on. It just sort of put together, uh, uh, you know, various aspects of the physics of baseball that I've been working on for over a decade. And so, it, for me, it was an ideal kind of uh, project to be part of. And I, uh, although I was disappointed we couldn't find the smoking gun, I was quite proud of what we as a group uh, accomplished with this. Right. Well, that's great. And it we is. are, we're pretty much out of time for the segment, but uh, hopefully you'll allow, allow us to uh, get back in touch with you periodically to just see how things are going. Sure enough. At any time. Professor, thank you so much indeed. Professor Alan Nathan there, who was chairman, chairperson of the uh, study introducing in baseball. We're going to take a short break when we come back. More baseball. Don't forget, it's juicing, it's broken bats, and it's record breakers, and we'll add them all here on Playing With Science. Welcome back to Playing With Science and our baseball special. A bit of a treat for you now. Professor James Sherwood, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at UMass Lowell, Director of the Baseball Research Center. Yes. Yes and uh, exploring many of the scientific aspects of the game in terms of bat and durability and baseball compliance. Yes. Yeah, I want to get into a little bit of that baseball compliance. You know. But before we do, hi, Professor. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, great to have you here. So can you just tell us, I mean, uh, no sense in jumping into this without giving the listeners um, a bit of a background on what you're doing with uh, particularly wood bats, because, of course, that's uh, that's Major League Baseball. Yeah, so uh, in 2008, there was uh, concern that the number of bats that were breaking into multiple pieces during Major League Baseball games was was growing. All right. And, uh, and that there was some concern as to how it was going to compromise the safety of the players on the field. And also with the spectators in the stands with, with pieces of wood flying around. So Major League Baseball assembled a technical team of wood experts and statisticians. And the team we have here with Patrick Drain and myself at the Baseball Research Center at the university, which Major League Baseball did give us our, our initial funding to establish, uh, to, to look into this problem. 
to see if we could understand why so many bats were breaking into multiple pieces and were there some measures that we could take to mitigate this problem. Cool. And now, you know, with that being said, I just, when you just said broken bats, I, you know, we're, we're about to have in our next segment, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have Sean Green, who is a Major League Baseball player and one of only 18 players in the history of all of baseball to hit four home runs in one game. One of those home runs, he actually hit off of a broken bat. So I asked you, Professor, can a broken bat help you at times? Can it actually do something to the ball, change the flight direction of the ball, make it so that it's, a, it's advantageous for you to break a bat when you're uh, hitting a ball? Well, great question. And the thing is, the, when the ball left the bat, it probably didn't know that the bat was even broken at that time. <laughs> so, so I'll leave it to the physicist. Wait a minute. You. That's very that's very much like many of my relationships. <laughs> Don't go down that road. When I leave, I had no idea how much damage I had done. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the ball hits the end of the bat. The sound wave travels down along the length of the bat to the player's hands. And when the player feels the, the vibration of the bat in their hands from the ball hitting it, the ball's already gone. Ah. And so in this case, the vibration that was uh, excited in the bat from the ball hitting it mm-hmm. uh, that led to the breaking of the bat, uh, that was happening after the ball had left the bat. Ah, interesting. That's very interesting. So let's talk about that vibration. Um, and uh, everybody who's played baseball um, – has hit the ball in such a way, I don't care how hard it was thrown, it's just a certain spot on the bat, you hit it, and it stings your hands. You're like, just like, God, what did I just do? So, one, what causes that? And when you talked about the vibration, what breaks the bat? Is it the force or velocity of the ball hitting the bat? Is it that vibration, kind of the way a crystal glass breaks when the opera singer sings? What's going on? Can you explain the whole process to us? Sure. So uh, so there's a spot on the bat called the sweet spot. Yep. Uh, and if you hit it on the sweet spot, you're not going to feel this vibration. So f- for to use, uh, to use a, an instrument here to help me uh, explain this, although I realize this is a podcast, right? So yes. uh, that's all right. People are there are some people who will see it as well. Oh, okay. So uh, if we're looking at the bat, and and I'll try to bend this pen as best as I can. I'll even turn it this way so it shows the university logo right here for you. Uh, <laughs> in the first bending mode, there's going to be a node. It, let's say this is the handle right here, and this is the barrel of the bat out here, and if you hit off of one of these vibration nodes for this first bending mode of, uh, of, of vibration for the bat, then you're going to feel this stinging. I mean, if you hit it right on this node right here that's out in the barrel, which is very close to where the spe- sweet spot is on the bat, uh, you're not going to feel the sting in your hands. And so that's what causes it. Just hitting it anywhere outside of this location of this node, this sweet spot area mm. on the barrel of the bat. What sort of size is this sweet spot on a baseball bat? So that's a really good question. Some people would say that, oh, the sweet spot on an aluminum bat, it's three times, four times bigger than it is on a wood bat. And likewise, saying the same thing for the composite bats that Mm -hmm. that people are using now. The sweet spot is really just a spot. And 
you know, so the, the, the batted ball speed coming off the bat, if I'm looking at the, the barrel of the bat right here, the, the sweet spot is going to be we're going to get the maximum batted ball speed out of the bat. And then it's going to go down in a sort of a parabolic fashion as you go left or right of that sweet spot. The further you get away from it, the lower the batted ball speed is going to be. So if in some cases when they say the sweet spot is bigger on an aluminum bat or a composite bat, what they're really saying is that, okay, off the sweet spot of the bat on an aluminum or composite bat, it's going to hit better than wood. Mm -hmm. And now there's this region that's so long right here, maybe three inches, four inches, where you're going to get a hit that is as good or better than what you're going to get off of a wood bat. So, so it's a marketing thing saying that the sweet spot is bigger mm. on some bats ah, than other bats. Gotcha. For Major League Baseball, I would assume all the bats have the same um, specs that they have to be manufactured to very specific specs. And does that include a type of wood and why use that type of wood in a bat? What is that wood and why do they use it? Yeah. So the two major types of wood that are used in Major League Baseball – are northern white ash and hard rock maple. And then there's also some bats that are made out of yellow birch. They probably comprise a very small, a negligible amount of bats. So there's uh, probably a split between maple and ash for the woods that are used. And uh, there's also a range of densities that you're allowed to use for these of these woods for the bats because the strength of the wood, the the elastic modulus or the stiffness of the wood increases with the wood density. So with the density comes the weight, correct? Correct. And each bat has a defined weight or is it a parameter from one to another or is it, it has to be precisely that weight? So there's a range of weights. Uh, I believe the, the regulation right now is that a bat can't be any lighter than three units. So we call these minus three bats. And the way that we calculate this minus three number is we take the length of the bat and we subtract from that the weight of the bat. So many players are swinging 34 inch long bats mm -hmm. and they like to think that they can hit better with a lighter bat than they can hit with a heavier bat. So they may choose to have a 31 ounce bat. And so we would call this a drop of three ounces of the weight compared to the length of the bat. And so that's a minus three bat. Some players might choose to use a minus two bat. Uh, so uh, there's, there's typically not a problem with setting an upper limit on the weight of the bat. The, where the players uh, are challenged is with what that lower weight limit is. And it's going to vary with the, very, the profile of the bat. So there are dozens and dozens of different shapes of the wood bat profile. It's going to be hard to discern maybe one shape for, from another shape. There can be very subtle differences. But uh, it's going to come down to what's the volume of that shape, that profile of the bat, and what wood density you use in that bat. You know, I want to switch gears for just a quick second, um, uh, just because I know you work with uh, – fabric reinforced composites this is and which is really exciting stuff i mean for a, a geek like me but uh and, and probably gary too because oh, no, he uh, loves yeah. this stuff so uh you know I, is there anything that you have worked with or are currently working with that would inform your research and your work with uh major league baseball 
So with Major League Baseball, it's only going to be wood bats. That's it. That's it. It's They're never going to allow aluminum bats. They're never going to allow composite bats. Major League Baseball is very much a game of tradition. Tradition. It's wood. It's wood. So, I mean, I'm, I was just thinking, I mean, wouldn't it be a little more exciting if you were able to have uh, maybe just two other bats that you were allowed in? So the, the player had a choice of, you know, a regulation wood bat and then perhaps a composite bat that maybe, depending upon circumstances or the type of pitcher you were facing, that you might be able to use. It, it would add a, an element of chess, of a chess, a greater chess match to the game. I think it would be a really exciting thing to include that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that would be an interesting experiment. And we'll just leave that to happen at the high school level and the college level. Because okay. there they can choose to use aluminum, composite, wood, and you can see how the differences shake out there. Oh, because and, and how do you feel about it? I, I, I mean, are you a traditionalist? Are you a purist? How do, I got a feeling that you are. Yeah, so just a little bit of history how I got started in doing this baseball bat stuff. Okay. So this was in the late 90s, and the NCAA and the high school – uh, Federation were very concerned that the aluminum bats and the composite bats were getting to be better and better than wood. They were initially brought into the game as being cost competitive. Mm -hmm. That you would you're going to break you're not going to break an aluminum bat during the course of a season compared to wood bats. And then as engineers realized how they could take advantage of the material properties and different designs, uh, the, the bats started getting better and better. So. That's when the NCAA and the high school federation stepped in and said, we need a process to, to test the performance of these bats. And what we were seeing is, yeah, they were hitting probably five miles per hour or better than wood bats, these composite and aluminum bats. But over a period of 10 years, uh, we were able to work with the bat companies to get these things toned down. So now the aluminum and the composite bats actually hit no better than whatever you want to call the best wood bats. Gotcha. So, so they they, they kind of hit all the same right now. Wow! Look at that, mm. and and that's basically why they why they employed you that and the safety issues as well. Because I remember, so so they were concerned about safety, but I want to make it very clear: I have I'm not a safety expert, and so I never have said anything about one bat being safe over another bat. Okay. There could be some legal implications with making statements like that. Okay. Uh, the only thing so, I can say is these bats hit essentially the same. All right. That's and is listen, we, we, you, you we appreciate your indemnifying yourself. No, believe me. <laughs> is, how about the balls? Do you, you work on the bats, but do you work on the balls as well, don't you? Yeah. So one of the uh, primary activities that we have with Major League Baseball is ensuring that the compliant that the baseball is compliant with the Major League baseball specifications, that its coefficient of restitution is within a specified range, uh, that the size is is within the max min specs, and likewise uh, the the weight of the baseball. So, and, is there is there any is there anything that can be done? Now, and believe me, we know that there's a lot that can be done to change the ball so that it performs mm. differently. Uh, there was a bit of a controversy. Was it last year? Last year, but plus in 2000. And in 2000? The professor was asked through uh, the Baseball Research Center to analyze the potential of juicing 
on right. baseball and you you proved that that wasn't the case it hadn't been juiced but how i mean what chuck is saying i think is how can you is 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 not a baseball a defined size or is it a game within parameters so the i got to give credit to rawlings they make a very consistent ball i mean uh-huh. the the weight of the baseball is supposed to be between 5 and a 5 and a quarter ounces they pretty much hit the middle for that uh, at five and eight ounces. Hmm. And with respect to the size, it's supposed to be between, uh, what, nine and nine and a quarter inches is the circumference of the ball. And once again, they hit that right in the middle. You know, with respect to changing the performance of the baseball, you've got this rubber pill that's in the center of the ball. Right. There are three windings of wool around the ball. And... I don't have the capabilities within my lab to to make baseballs with different windings and different pills and such. But there are those ingredients that uh, can be uh, played with to, to change the performance of the ball. And once again, Rawlings does a great job of making sure that every rubber pill is essentially the same, the windings essentially the same, so that the nominal behavior of the ball is consistent cool and that's well, good to know yep next, um, next time i'm out on a major league baseball field i'll feel more comfortable <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> professor thank you so much for your time and your insight and explaining to us exactly what is happening in the world of baseball uh time to take another break yeah thank uh, you so much yeah, professor. thank you to james sherwood there professor at UMass Lowell, uh, right when we come back, record breaker time. Sean Green. Sean Green will be a here. A man with more records than you could shake a stick at. Yes. Or a bat. Yes. Or anything else. By the way, he broke the record of shaking a stick at records. I believe he did. <laughs> Welcome back to Playing With Science and our baseball show. Uh, record breaker doesn't quite cover it but I'll fill in the gap. Yeah. Sean Green. Yeah. Uh, a man with a past. Toronto Blue Jays, Los Angeles Doggers, Arizona Diamondbacks, and the New York Mets. And as I said just prior to the break, more records than anyone has ever shook a stick at. <laughs> right, Chuck, do you want to yeah. go in? Not, not to mention he's a two-time All-Star Golden Glover. He did. Uh, he's a Silver Slugger Award yeah. winner. And more importantly, the man is known for probably uh, being one of only eight 18 players in all of baseball history. So think about all of baseball and all the players that have ever come across every single team. Only 18 dudes have done what Sean Green has done, and that's hit four home runs in one game, and he was the 14th to do it. Sean, how are you, man? Thanks for joining us. Yes. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So, like, uh, super excited to have you on because – like, like I just said, first of all, I just found out a really interesting little tidbit. Go on, then. There have been more perfect games thrown in baseball than uh, people who have hit four home runs in, in, in one game. You, you're more rare. You are more rare than a perfect game, my friend. <laughs> uh, that was pretty wild. No, it's... Um it's one of those things that, you know, all the stars, if they line up correctly, there's a lot of guys who could do it, but it just worked out perfectly that day. I was, I got really hot and, uh, no, it's, 
it's definitely a, a club. I, I'm also in the four strikeout in the game club, so it's nice to be in the four homer club as well. Uh, yeah, but one's a lot easier <laughs> to join than the other, and you know it. <laughs> Speaking of which, too, when you 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 were uh, you were kind of in a downturn when when that game yeah. came about, right? You were I think it was Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm. And you were kind of going into the game in in a bit of a downturn. So can you kind of walk us through like what you were? What you were going through mentally, because I'm sure that had to be a wild emotional ride to come from being kind of downtrodden, you know, in a bit of a slump. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and then boom. So can you can you walk us through mentally what happens? Yeah. So I the year before it was my second year in L.A. and I had I had signed a big contract, had a lot of expectations and had, a, you know, a mediocre first year. And then my second year, I, I hit 49 home runs. And that's the, you know, the Dodger record. And so I had, all of a sudden I set the bar really high. And then fast forward now to 2002, uh, I got off the first quarter of the season. I had three home runs. So, you, you know, you guys are science guys. You do the math. You know, that's about 12, 13 home runs I was on pace for. And I was getting I was over 18 in the homestand until my last at bat. And I was getting booed at home for the first time in my career. And it was uh, it was rough. I was, I was really down, um, worked really hard, you know, throughout the season. But, you know, stepping up some of the routines in the cage and actually got my first day off of the year um the saturday played sunday my last at bat i hit a double and that kind of got me going and then the first game in milwaukee i was really happy to get the gray uniform on and be on the road because i was uh, not wanting to hear the home crowd booing me every time i fouled off a pitch or took a strike and uh <laughs> which is rough. home fans are great <laughs> so aren't we, they? we hit milwaukee in the first game i hit two home runs so i was like okay i'm starting to feel this the next day i hit a triple and then that next day, I, I everything just kind of clicked, and um, I got in the zone. I was and I was six for six with uh, four homers, a single, and a double. When you're in this moment, I'm thinking about it. You've either had a time machine and used it, and you know exactly what's being dialed up and coming over the plate to you, or you have got the most amazing sense of what the pitcher's thinking, and the vision must be outrageous because. I don't believe you get that lucky. No, you, you get, I think, lucky in that the opportunity um, arises because, you know, the game could be in a situation yeah. where they walk you because they know you're, you're, you're swinging a hot bat. But it, it, was, it was a blowout. And my, my good friend and teammate of 10 years, Carlos Delgado, did it a year later. Yeah. And he had four home runs, four solo home runs, I think, and, um, and they lost. So our situation was a blowout. Yeah. So they getting pitches to hit. And, um, yeah, no, I mean, everything slowed down. My vision was, you know, my, my timing was great. And what's, what's interesting about it that was different than other times I, I got locked in was I, I wasn't overthinking it. Cause sometimes you're like, Oh my God, I feel so good. I don't want to waste this time. But I just sort of settled into that feeling. And as I said, I hit two home runs the first day, then four the next day, the next day we went to Milwaukee. I hit a home run. My fir- the first pitch I saw and had two more hits and then two more home runs the next day. So it's, Went from this like crazy slump to this, you know, nine home runs in five games, which was something that, you know, I, I would have never guessed was going to happen the way the season started out. Are you working your way out of something like that? I mean, um, you know, I and what what do and Gary's a, prof- a former professional player as well. So uh, but soccer. In, in football, soccer. Yeah. Uh, yep. But, you know, I'm trying to figure out from a mindset when, you know, when when it's not going well. What are you doing inside your head? What are you saying? Like, I got to work harder. Or do you, I got to wear different socks. I mean, what do you do 
to to work your way when out you get, of it. When you get down to the point where you're looking at wearing different socks, you have been through everything. <laughs> Am I right? You're right. Now, baseball players are very superstitious. So, yeah. Because, you know, one thing that's different about baseball than really any other professional sport is the the sheer amount of games you play right. in a short period of time. So you get about two or three days a month where you don't have a game. So you're playing every day. So the routine becomes your preparation. And it's it's to the point of eating the same meals or – um, you know, getting a stadium and, and getting changed in the same way, like it kind of sounds weird, but you know, maybe you put your socks on, like, you just kind of get in this routine that helps get your kind of your mind kind of funneling down. So you start off each day in this space and you get narrow and narrow of your focus and the routine is, is the process. So, so I, I focused when I struggled, you know, it's easy to say now, I mean, I spent a lot of nights staring at the ceiling in some hotel, God knows where frustrated and stressed out, not, not being able to sleep, but then. I just tried to remind myself to focus on the process and, you know, being in a, in a hot streak or being in a slump, it's just sort of a wave that you have to ride and you know each of those two are going to pass and you just hope you can extend the, the hot streak as long as possible and shorten those slumps. We, we hmm. spoke to uh, Dr. Heather Berlin, who's a neuroscientist, and she was telling us about when you dial up and you dial down and you learn to control the brain waves that are coming through and how you are in a state of flow. Once you tapped into that, as you said in the Milwaukee game, did you feel able to dial it back up almost at will? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's like a muscle, right? I mean, you work out, everyone gets stronger in the gym. Um, I used to do brain exercises, you know, way back in the, with some software, and I think that helped. But I, I, I'm a meditator, um, so I've been into that type of thing as well. Always kind of trying to tie the Eastern approach into in, in my performance because it's it's something I think that gets overlooked quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to know, hey, if I go to the gym, work out, or do certain types of sprints, I'm going to get faster, stronger, in better shape. But training your, your focus is a really um, kind of nebulous type thing to get to get your arms around. And mm -hmm. so I try to come up with ways, ways to do that. And, and you know, when I was in a hot streak, I felt like it was never going to end, but I knew uh, through experience that, Hey, this is going to end yeah. just to, to try to keep things in perspective and, and just ride it out as long as I can. How did your teammates react to you taking these techniques forward and using them for your own benefit? Yeah. I, I mean, people are, are pretty open. I think, um, you know, I was one of the early baseball players to start doing yoga and things like that. And, and, you know, now I, I think it's rare for players to not do yoga or some type of, uh, you know, breath, mind, body type exercise. Yeah. And um, so I, I think people were receptive and the better you perform that people are like, hey, what are you doing? I want to try to do what you're doing. And I think that's that's what happens. I, and my career sort of took off at the same time. Um, and plus, I think age is a factor. You know, I was like 25. I was like textbook prime 25 to 29. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I think as these things started to, to take root, um, that's when I got better. Let me get a little, just a little baseball. -y. I just want to know, uh, so like, uh, so that day, what we're talking about, that was all right field, but you're also known for going the other way. Like you're good at like hitting over the shortstop center left. Is that something you worked on or is that, is that something that happens organically for a hitter or do you like, do you practice that how's that how's that come about that's a good question it's sort of a complicated you know response but I'll, I'll keep it as brief as i can but 
you know, my swing was naturally sort of a, a an opposite field type swing. Um, other guys like that, I, I modeled myself after guys like John Olerud, who was my teammate in Toronto. Yeah. Um, you know, Don Mattingly, Wade Boggs, like some of those the great left-handed hitters when I was growing up. Um, a lot of them were line drives over the shortstop's head. Um, and I think also as I grew into my body, my, my arms are really long. So it's, it's easier for me to get to the outside pitch. The inside pitch is, is a little tougher because I have, I have to get it out front more because my arms are, are, are long. Right. So I think that, that was a big part of it. Even like the home run game, um, the game where I hit all the home runs, um, one of them was to straightaway left field. And, and what I did is I, I used to play a home run derby game in batting practice, which is sort of counterintuitive because you're, tra- you're taught to not, um, you know, overswing in batting practice. But Carlos Delgado, the same guy who hit four the year after me, we um, used to do a home run derby game where we set up points and kind of make make a, a fun time of it. And right field was out of bounds. Like we'd set, we'd set, you know, right center, almost center field, and we'd have a point system. And we took it really seriously. We we try to hit the ball as far as we could to center field, basically. Wow. On, on every swing. And and what I what I found is I, I was teaching myself to hit home runs, and I was teaching myself to swing hard, and but under control when I got into these counts like two zero and three one when you get a good pitch to hit. And that's when I really learned how to do it. And, and my thought was as well, if I could hit the pitch outside out to left field, just like a right-handed hitter would hit out to left field, right. that gives such an advantage because when you're hitting home runs, pitchers try to throw away because they're scared to come in and have you you know, hit it to your pole side. So it, it actually worked in my advantage to, to get better at hitting the ball out the other way. Yeah, man. Yeah. And actually, you know, I never thought of that, though, but in the pitching, in the pitching batter battle, um, what you said, the pitcher is now looking at you because he studied you. Mm-hmm. And so he's looking at you like, wow, I can't go in like that because this guy is going to make me pay for it. So I, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really it gets a lot easier when you're hot, not just because you're in a zone, but because it becomes really easy to know how they're going to pitch you. Right. You're sort of forcing them. I sort of that would force them to my strengths. Cool. And, that's kind of it's, how it it's funny. We did a show last year with a fabulous guy, Ron Darling. Yeah. Love yeah, Ron. Former, great. Yeah, love Ron. Isn't he? And he said, I would set batters up earlier on in the season by throwing a certain ball that was absolute garbage. Yep. And then later on in the season, I know I'd probably be facing them in a playoff situation and they'd be thinking, oh, he threw me that garbage before. That's what he's got. And he said, and then I'm slice and dice them. <laughs> How, yeah, how did no, they? Did you did you ever feel you you were getting set up by a pitcher? Yeah, I mean, I think it worked both ways. Sometimes I was setting them up too. I mean, yeah. it's it's part of the game. It really becomes a, a chess match, and and players don't forget how guys are approaching them. I yeah. actually did a lot better against better pitchers because I understood what they were trying to do. Guys who weren't as good, you know, the, all these guys are major leaguers, so they all have good stuff. But the guys who really knew how to pitch, I felt were easier in some ways to hit against because I knew what Greg Maddox's plan was. I understood, I understood his thought process and right. if I was him, how he would pitch me. Um, and then you have some, some young guy come in that was throwing 95 and you know, I, he didn't really know what to do. He was kind of like, you're not supposed to throw that pitch there. You know, so you, you have that type of uh, mentality, but it's, there's a lot of setting up what I got really good at um, over the years. And there was actually an article I saw with the Red Sox Yankees game the other day where they had Luis uh, Severino's pitches. They, yeah. He was actually tipping his pitches by the way he was holding his glove. And that was something that I learned and, and got really good at and was able to, 
determine what a guy's going to throw off a lot of times before he threw it. Cool. What are you into now as regards uh, what exercises your mind? Because you're not swinging a bat anymore. Actually, I'll do one better. Like, uh, why don't you just take this time and go ahead and plug uh, Greenfly, which is oh, your yeah. which is your digital platform? Because yeah. I, I know you're doing some work. What is that about? Yeah, so it's a it's an enterprise software platform. So we sell to a lot of brands, and uh, it's it's really what we are is a hub for collaborating with a brand's storytellers. So that could be their employees or influencers. So we're an app as well as a backend, and they could create um, galleries of content, share the content through the through their um, influencers or staff, and and it's a kind of a two way street. Um, and so we work with a lot of big brands and media companies and sports leagues and teams. Um, with just the the publishing and creation of content. Wow, man. That is I, impressive. Okay, so there's a little bird tells me you may have a family relationship with science. I do. I ah. do. I have a Are very... Are you prepared to share? Uncle. Yeah, so my mom's um, sister's husband. You guys got that? Mom's yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're paying attention. So he's... He was for a long time, I don't know the exact department, but he was basically the head of cell biology at Harvard. And his name's Mark Kirshner. And a brilliant guy. I mean, he's, you know, doing all kinds of stuff with cell division and, you know, things obviously tied to, to cancer research. And he's been, he's, you know, in his 70s now, so he's been at it a long time and done mm. some great work, for sure. Very cool. Very and cool. And we have one thing to say. Thank you. Yeah. It's been brilliant talking to you, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, that's us that's our show man so juiced balls broken bats and a record breaker yeah it's not bad for a show not bad for a show I I like this show I like it too and guess what we'll be back with more but it'll be a different show next time hopefully you'll join us on another Playing With Science I've been Gary O'Reilly and I've been Chuck Nice yes we have